Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on January 18th, 2018. All right, so if you're listening and you're, you know, 30 years old or under, that's a typewriter. That's the noise a typewriter used to make. And it had paper in it. And never mind. They were actually kind of fun, typewriters. And paper was kind of fun. And paper is still around. In fact, let me tell you, let me make a quick observation. So I'm not, in fact, a huge fan, or I haven't really watched a lot of either version of The Office, the comedy show about a really terrible boss and a really terrible office. Um, so it had, it had had eluded my comprehension that uh, in the office they are actually working for a paper company. And so here's and so the whole idea of that, I presume, part of the comic conceit, some of the sense of uh, of comic futility that would be hang over the the lives and fates of the people on this show, The Office, would be that they're working for a paper company, which is by definition doomed, right? At least according to the way we think about these things. And that's one of the things we're going to explore on the show today is whether or not the way we think about these things is, in fact, an accurate way to think about things. But in any case, this is the part of the story that I love. So the show, of course, is has been extraordinarily popular. It's not on the air anymore. It has been extraordinarily popular. Uh, so popular that in 20, 2011, <laughs> you're going to like this, in 2011, uh, Staples, licensed the name Dunder Muffin from NBC or Comcast or somebody uh, so that they could put out a line of Dunder Muffin paper products, which they have done. I think they sell it at a site called Quill.com. But uh, (laughs) so, I mean, just think about that for a second, all right? The notion is that this is a funny business for the people in the office to be in because nobody really wants paper. Paper's on the way out. Except that because the series is very popular, there's actual market for the paper that's made by this fictional company. And I think that's as good a prism as any I can think of to refract this story. That that in a way, you know, paper is on, it's been for a long, long time, as you'll see, on a downward trend. But there's another way in which we have an attraction to paper that we probably will never completely rid ourselves of. All right, so I'll stop babbling and I'll introduce you to our first guest. Uh, We have a whole bunch of guests here uh, on the show today to explore different aspects of this. And I would also say that if you have uh, interesting stories to say or interesting observations, about how paper works or doesn't work in your lives, tweet at us. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. Uh, we'd be happy to hear from you either way. All right, so uh, joining us now to give us kind of a sense of, of the historical arc of paper uh, is Richard Harper, co-director of the Institute of Social Futures and a professor of computer science at the University of Lancaster, uh, co-author uh, of The Myth of the Paperless Office. So first of all, uh, Richard Harper, welcome to our show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, so uh, let's just start with the title of the book. Uh, I know uh, that uh, although you have studied the paperless office, you've never actually seen a paperless office, right? There, there may not be a paperless office to be seen. 
Well, when we wrote the book, which was, was some time ago, certainly uh, you didn't see paperless offices then. And um, that seemed to be part of um, the, the kind of curious landscape that uh, we were researching. We worked at that time, I worked for Xerox and Xerox was a kind of paradoxical company because it was hiring people like me to invent a new digital future. And most of the stuff you see on the desktop machines, the mouse and the icons on your screen was all invented by Xerox. And that technology was meant to replace paper. And yet Xerox themselves made their money by selling paper. And um, so they kind of wanted to put themselves out of business. But we, as a research team, we said to them, well, Despite the fact you built all this technology to replace paper, if you go and look at anyone's office then, 15 years ago, there's loads of paper. In fact, there seemed to be more paper um, than ever. And the evidence was, in fact, suggesting that it, the more technology you bought 15 years ago, 10 years ago, to replace paper in the office, the more you ended up printing paper out. Mm. I think the world's changed now, though. So so the show you were talking about, the the office show, um, is make, makes a mockery of, a, of an old-fashioned a world, the paper industry, and I think you do you do see offices now, hot desk offices, where there seems to be no paper, but mm. they do look a little heartless, and perhaps that speaks something about what paper does for us. Right. Well, we'll come back to that question of heartlessness. I, I know I put something up on Facebook about this, and uh, Matthew uh, wrote to me, "Where I work, we print documents out." And then they get scanned into a database. Then other people in the company um, want to look at the documents, so they print them out from the database. And then he puts paperless in, in, in quotation marks. I would guess that this is a cycle that is not unfamiliar to you. Yeah, it is. It is but one uh, should laugh about it because, really, this is just um, sort of fantastically inefficient. There's no reason why you need to print things out and then scan them back in. I, I think sometimes, and oftentimes, in fact, uh, paper gets used as um, in the office as a workaround for some pretty clunky systems and pretty uh, unwilling computer networks which don't talk to other computer networks. But um, um, And so one should laugh at that. And paper's just a kind of, it's like a, like a, like a plaster um, to, to fix poor computing. But I, I, I think paper does other things in the office and, and other things like paper books and things which are, are something to do with the, the features of paper. It's not so much the, the deficiencies of um, badly in, implemented computer systems. Right. And, and in terms of those other things, I mean, there's so many of those things to talk about. Actually, before we get to that, though, let's just uh, acknowledge that paper has had many funerals. Um, and we can talk about the, the funeral that started in 1975, although if we have time, it might be interesting to go back in, into the past because, in fact, uh, some of the other funerals go back uh, into the 1800s. But in, around somewhere around 1975, when there really weren't office computers, somehow or other, people had already begin in, begun envisioning this world in which paper would be less and less necessary. How was that the case, that they were thinking that? Well, when, when Xerox and other companies, um, many of which have now disappeared, <laughs> started building um, uh, computers, which were not just scientific tools, but actually tools for the office, the things they were designing those computers to do was to, to basically um, enable people to create and read and share um, documents. Um, and um, as they were doing that, it, it sort of seemed obvious that if you could do this, if, do, if you could make a document, you can read a document on the screen and then you could send it via an Ethernet, was mostly the networks then, to, to your colleagues, then, then the role of paper would um, gradually diminish. And in fact, when we, when we wrote, wrote the book, one of the things we were looking at was, thinking, was to us, well, given that the technology had become fairly widespread, what was it about paper that made it persist since it seemed such a strange phenomenon? And, and at that particular time, um, 
there were some good reasons for paper persisting. So, for example, the screens that we were using then were not as good as the ones we have now. So you, your eyes really would ache if you, if you read off the screen. And uh, people would um, almost um, instinctively print things off to read, read them. But there are other things to, that we noticed all those years ago which the computer systems couldn't do. So if you look to people reading documents in the office, as we did in all sorts of different places in America and in Europe, one of the obvious little things we noticed, which we had never thought of when we were designing the systems, which were, for example, people mark on paper documents with pen and scribbles and make strange little annotations. But they also interleave one of the documents they're reading with another report, like last year's report, and they cross-reference to it. And then often they'd have a third piece of paper where they're making notes for you know, resources for the, the document they're going to produce. And computer systems then were quite difficult to do those sorts of things as efficiently. So you could, although if you'd done all your note preparation and your reading on paper, then you might go to the computer to your workstation, as it were, and, and kind of create the document digitally then. Nevertheless, paper had um, an important role in, in other matters. But I, what I would say now, though, is although the computer systems we have in the office really haven't changed much, although it might appear they're different because they're tetherless often and they're more lightweight and we have tablets... I think other things have happened in the workplace, which means that the role of uh, digital technology and the role of paper is, is not quite as it was, say, 15, 20 years ago. I don't think people in the office read as much as they did 20 years ago in a kind of um, slow, boring, let's read the whole document type of thing. What they do in the office in the workplace these days is, is attend to the kind of torrent of social media messaging and email messaging and SharePoint sharings and PowerPoint sharings and Skype calls. And it's a kind of, um, it's, a, it's much more febrile and intense and a bit more overwhelming. Whereas the offices we looked at 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, people really would settle down for an hour and read a report. And they would do so with pen and paper in hand and paper on the desktop. And, and they weren't constantly being tested by what you see in the current office, which is uh, kind of the... the um, uh, the unmanageable torrent of social connectivity. So I, th I think the feel of being in the office has altered for, for people themselves. And that also shows itself in the technologies that they're using, the kind of mix and the range of technologies they have. Right. So I should say that my notes for this show, which, by the way, did not prevent me from getting the name of the company on the office completely wrong, but my notes for the show are on an iPad right now. And one thing that I'm keenly aware of is that whenever I do this, I'm holding an iPad in my hand. If I think of another thing I want to ask you about, I can't jot it down very easily on this iPad. I can't. I'd have to put a post-it or something on the iPad, which would be kind of ridiculous. So there, there's like right away, I think there's still that thing that you were describing before, that notion uh, of annotating. Uh, of maybe merging with something else. But I also think what you're describing right now makes me think um, that in a way we we kind of honor the significance of something if we are willing to print it out and read it. I was listening to some journalists uh, the other day talking about a, the transcript of a very important hearing that had taken place in Washington that could materially affect the fate of the Trump administration. And they said they both said that they had printed it out and gotten into bed with it so, and read the whole 230 pages of this transcript or whatever. And, and I think they were kind of saying kind of what you're saying, which is this was important enough so that I really did want to slog all the way through it. I wanted to be able to do it in an environment when I, where I wasn't being peppered and battered with all kinds of other stuff. I wanted to be sort of air-gapped from, from my digital life. No, I, th I think that's right. I, I, but, but I think partly you print out such things because they're important. Partly you print out such things so that 
um, you can take you can take yourself away with them to yes. some private space, away from digital connectivity. But there's also something else, and I and I think our research showed it, and more recent research showed it too, which is that when you've got a large, long document, like a long narrative, whether it's a, a book, a fictional book, or a long report. When you're reading through it, you use your hands and your pen and your marking and the way you fold paper on the pages to kind of get a, a physical sense of the geography of it. So when you when you read a big report and you put it down have a, in England, go and have a cup of tea, you come back and you can see where you are in that report. You can see that you're two-thirds of the way through. So the kind of the, the physical geography of the paper document lets you feel a sense of where you are in things. And when you get to the last page, say, of a report – there's a kind of lightness to that large page and it, you turn it over and you see the back of the report and, and that somehow helps you navigate through that document and tidy, and tidy it up in your head, as it were, know that that work's done. Whereas when, when you do, if you try and read long, long things um, on a screen, you can read to the end, but when you get to the end, you don't feel as if there's no physical end to the way you're handling that object. And I think... That's one of the things that paper people are beginning to realise about paper rediscovery. There's a kind of there's a kind of geography to the argument that you can fill with mm. your fingers and the way you navigate through it. And sometimes that geography is really important for how you experience and understand it. So in a novel, for example, and we, one of the things interesting about ebooks is they haven't replaced paperbacks as they were expected to do in the past two or three years. And one reason is because people feel as if when you're in an ebook, you don't. Although you are just reading the pages, you know, page by page, and there's little icons to help you tell you, see where you are, you don't feel that you know where you are. You don't feel as if you can just pick it up and go straight to the page, but you also don't, you can't see at a glance how much more you've got to go. So on a thriller book, for example, you get thrilled when you see you're near the end, when you can feel your end, you can see the end as you walk up to the book, and you can leave the book in places where you bump into it, knowing that it might allow you to be, to pick it up and just furtively read another chapter. And those sorts of physical properties, um, I think, are bound up with the, the important value of paper. And it's not just that when you're on paper, you're you're unconnected to the digital world and the kind of the chronic assault of connectivity. There's lots of other things that are going on with paper too. Um, all right. So I, I know that one of the industries that you are, or groups of, uh, of people that you studied in your book were air, air traffic controllers. We've actually got a pilot uh, uh, calling in right now. Uh, here's Adam from West Hartford. Hi, Adam. What's on your mind? Hey, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, yeah, the airline industry, I'm a pilot for a major airline, and uh, we're starting to go towards everything being in digital. So flight plans, everything, just uploading to an iPad so we could just look at that. Because right now, when we step to the desk where everyone, you know, gives their ticket, we print off probably a, you know, 10-foot-long piece of paper, essentially done by a dot matrix printer, which is probably the only thing keeping those companies in business still. <laughs> And there's just tons and tons of paper wasted where I know other airlines like Lufthansa and stuff, some of the European ones, they've gone to pure 100% electronic uh, flight, flight publications and flight plans, so they don't take any paper at all. I think it's a big cost savings and a waste savings also. So Let me ask you this, and I'm going to ask Richard about this too, Adam, but while I've got you... Do you, do, you, do you worry about failure at all? I mean, there's a way in which paper, once you've got a piece of paper on your hand, in your hand, other than you losing it, there are a limited number of things that can happen to it. Whereas screens go dark, screens go blank, systems crash. Does that bother you? Worry you? Well, that, yeah, that could be. That is a concern. However, uh, both the captain and myself, first officer, you know, we both have a tablet that we're using. So we could always, you know, 
look at that. The flight plan itself, we upload to the computer system, the flight management system on the airplane itself. So that's, you know, that's not really the problem. It's more when we're using our charts and approach plates that we look at to, you know, get into an airport or out of an airport. Um, we do have paper copies of that on the side still. So they haven't totally removed everything. That's kind of the fail site. But when it comes to picking up the flight plan and uh, the NOTAMs are called, you know, what's going on at the airport, if the runways are closed or what taxiways are closed, that we can just all have digitally on our flight on our uh, flight tablet. And that's not really a big concern. And I think that's where the big savings is. So, All right. Well, listen, Adam, thanks for sharing this. It is great to get a look behind the scenes at your industry. Richard, I'll just let you react to that any way that you choose. No, well, I think Adam's right that there's, you know, in some situations you, you wonder why paper has persisted so long. I, I, I one could ask Adam if it, uh, I've got his name right, whether he still uses paper for the flight checklist, the kind of list that um, pilots need to go through as they're prepping the plane. But certainly, when they're sending sending in their their flight plans and they're um, submitting their requests for a slot in the airspace, you, you, that's all already digital. So you, you, one would assume that it'd be better to, to start in digital and stay in digital. But, but you know, one of the things you might say about being a pilot is um, the business of being a pilot is, 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 is you know, is, 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 is flying. Whereas lots of businesses, the business is, is words or are words. You know, what do, what do lawyers do? And mm-hmm. um, what do, you know, um, what do marketing agencies do? Well, a lot, lot, lot of businesses... Um, making documents is part and parcel of, of of what they do. And one of the things you you, you said a minute ago about um, really important things people like to print out to make them. Well, one of the ways companies, like um, professional companies, um, sort of honour their own product is by printing out beautifully and binding it up and then giving it to the customer. Now, the mm-hmm. customer might actually not necessarily need to to read everything; they might prefer to have it all digitally. But it's part of the kind of like part of the ceremony of giving, and that's often bound up with what the product is of, 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 of businesses. And, you know, if you think about it, the business of, of words, say in law or uh, in lots of different industries, it's, it's, a, it's a funny old product, isn't it? And, that, and I think the paper has co-evolved with that and the written reports and the manner of written reports and the feel of written reports to make what is otherwise a kind of a bit of a strange business seem a bit more real. Um, you know, just in that level of our our, our security, and bo- both our, our sort of mental and psychological security and then security in its other sense, uh, as you've probably heard, we're a little worried about our elections here in the United States these days. And we have this uh, notion, this very odd notion that uh, maybe Mr. Putin would like to uh, have a bigger impact on our elections than uh, a Russian leader really should. And so we're very worried about the security of our voting machines. And at some atavistic level, I think so. There has to be paper involved. There has to be a paper record. You shouldn't have a completely paperless voting machine. That's a voting machine that can be hacked and tinkered with in a way that's undetectable. So, am I engaging in magical thinking about this? Is there is there in fact nothing about paper that is any more or less secure than a good secure electronic system? Uh, well, no, I think you are hitting it, hitting and pointing at something important, which is and, you know, electronic systems are, are, are not secure, but they and, and nor paper-based systems. They, you know, they, they do different things. They have different different um, vulnerabilities. But I think one of the things that you might, you know, if you if you if you sort of see society in a bigger picture and look at how people, why people do things, one of the things you might say about what people do and what we've done. For, for generations is we like to make things and we like to create things and the things have to be real things and sometimes those you know you, you um, 
uh, you know, a nice simple example. If you if when your partners when one of your kids is their, your birth their birthday, most parents much prefer along with giving them presents to give them a real birthday card, a paper birthday card, rather than just uh, a click through on a screen because there's something real and tangible. And not only can you give it to them, but you can see them hold it and you can see them put it on the mantelpiece. And similarly, some of the things we do in life seem to be so precious and such important measures of what we're about that to make them just a kind of um, a fleeting touch, touch on a screen seems to diminish them. And voting seems to be one of those things. You feel like saying that, you know, not only do I want to vote on a piece of paper, but I want a big piece of paper and I want a big pen. And I kind of want it to make a lot of noise when I do it, like I'm scratching my mark on a great stone or something, because it's such an important demonstration of my my involvement. And I think that points towards something about what's deep inside of us, about the corporal, the real, the, the touchable, the the giveable. And one of the problems with the digital is um, it seems to, to to trap you in, in just inside your mind, just inside an imagined world and a world you can't grapple with. And you, and you feel because you can't want to grapple with it with your body that something makes you feel ill at ease about it as if you're losing placement somehow, if that makes sense. Well, there's a word that, that you use that I, I have never encountered this word before, but I, I like it. Uh, very much. It's affordances. Explain what you mean by affordances, particularly in this context. Well, um, it, 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 it's a, it was a word conjured by um, uh, a psychologist a couple, a couple of decades ago, and he was trying to persuade his colleagues that instead of um, treating um, the world and things in it as just sort of fixed things. You, you sort of bump, you, you, you see them and you know their shapes. Think of the things that you, that, that, the physical things in the world in terms of how they get used, in terms of what you do, do with them. So um, uh, uh, you, you, a pen, you hold your fingers, but you hold for quite a long time. So your fingers need to, the pen needs to be shaped so that it doesn't make your fingers ache. The steering wheel on the car needs to let you your fingers loose a little, loosen a little bit and spin through it. A, um, a book needs to be a paper book needs to be light enough for you to hold it in your hands, but 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 um, heavy enough for you to feel as if the book itself has a weighty story inside of it. And he 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 said that you could call you could describe those properties affordances. And paper has lots of affordances, like you can mark, you can write on paper, you can you can tear paper up. Uh, um, uh, paper can be um, has sides on it. All those are affordances. Whereas digital has some of those affordances, but other other affordances. For example, digital digital um, files like a, an email can disappear. It can just vanish. It's, it, where, where it's, it's very difficult to make paper di- disappear. In fact, one of the things you might say is a curious property, a curious affordance of paper is that paper is often recycled paper. Papers even can be even made out of recycled clothes. So paper has kind of persistence about it and affordance, which is pecu- it's quite different from one of the properties of, of, the, of the digital. And one of the affordances of, of the digital, which makes people worry, is, is precisely its... Um, it's transience. It's it, the ease with which it can disappear. But another affordance of the of the digital is this also an, another kind of magical property, which is just as it can be seen here, say in my office in England, you can see it in your office in Connecticut at the same time. So the affordances of space and the digital are quite different from the affordances of a of a paper document. Well, you know, one of the nice things about um, a love letter, say, written on paper, is that it can only be in your lover's hands or in your hands. 
Whereas if you send a love letter, say, in, on a digital, you fly saying, is it a copy of it in the cloud? Have Microsoft got a copy of it somewhere? Have, have Apple got an iStore copy of my love letter? How, where, is, where are all the copies? <laughs> and it, so that's, that's, that's what was meant by affordance. And that, we, we use that affordance and, and in, in our book. But as I do a lot of researchers trying to think about um, what different things afford. And you could extend it to, for example, the media. What does listening to a chat show afford? What is the affordances of listening? What is it, what, well, there's lots of affordances. One of the affordances of that is that it lets you look at other things whilst you listen. Whereas, it, whereas a TV show, for example, in a sense demands you watch as well as listening. So that might be better, might not be, not be, not be better. And, you know, um, those sorts of mixes of affordances create all sorts of interesting possibilities and contrasts and, and ways of understanding the world which can let you design it in different ways. We're going to uh, take a break here and come back with more uh, of this conversation. Uh, we're going to add another voice to it. We're going to take a call also from a naval architect. Uh, and we're going to continue talking to uh, Richard Harper, co- co-director of the Institute of Social Futures and professor of computer science at University of Lancaster, co-author of The Myth of the Paperless Office. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded January 18th, 2018. We're talking about the um, what? The myth of the paperless office, but also the persistence of paper, but also the imperilment of paper. All those things uh, are, are being talked about on the show today. Uh, before we get back to the conversation, I do want to say that, particularly apropos of what Richard Harper was just saying, I, I've been thinking about this all day, that there's a kind of Zen paradox, too, which is that uh, if you and I uh, would like to communicate about something in a way that is as private as possible, and we're not just going to simply speak those words, you know, we'll probably, we'd probably be well advised to use paper, right? Because there'll, be, there'll be one thing, one letter, whatever it is that we wrote, and we could agree to stuff it in a, a crack in a wall or whatever we're going to do with it, and that's the only way anybody's ever going to get it. Um, so there's sort of a way in which we think of paper as a good way to stay private. But it's also, I mean, you know, there's, there's, so paper is kind of permanent that way. But we also think the other way about paper, too, which is that, um, you, you know, it's not as searchable. If things, a piece of paper can get lost, and then you'll never be able to retrieve it, whereas things in the digital universe tends to, tend to get cached, you know, and preserved and stuff like that. So I don't know. I've been, I've been, pondering this this Zen koan uh, about paper. It's kind of both things. Uh, all right, so we, we have uh, more of Richard Harper, and we, we're going we're to add another guest. But before we do that, just simply because I only really have two good lines here, uh, let's uh, add for a moment Bill from Madison who's calling in. Hi, Bill. What's on your mind? Hi. Hi. Uh, big, big fan of your show. Um, well, I, I started out my um, talking to your producer that we're, the transformation in my business is so profound. We, we really are pretty close to paperless if you just add up like percentage of paper or something. And you're a naval architect? Right. So I draw boats. Yeah. Um, or big ones. Yeah. Little ones. Everything. Yeah. All of us in this business basically have a disease. Mm-hmm. We got infected at a young age and we can't stop. And we somehow figure out how to get paid to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started out with pencil. My generation is the last one that actually spent time on the boards drawing. And uh, 
So in my early career, I was actually drawing and even using ink and I mean, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And now uh, I, I, I don't have to do that. But um, so what happens is most of the things we produce uh, never, never get printed full size. Mm-hmm. They get drawn and uh, they get developed and then they get uh, put into a PDF and they get sent and they're reviewed uh, electronically. The classification societies and the government agencies, the, right, the Coast Guard, review them. They, they require an electronic copy. Mm-hmm. They get reviewed on screen. They get marked up on screen. They get sent back with the comments. Um, is, there any downs- yeah. is there a downside side to that? Yes, of course. So, so the strange thing is that every time we say, you know, this is a little out of hand, and we, we turn on the plotter and we get another roll of plotter paper and we put it in there and we, and we do a more formalized, old-fashioned checking process, mm-hmm. and we, we, we run the plotter and print out a D size or an E size, which is 24 by 36 or bigger, get out the red pencils and mark it up. You, you end up with a better product. Mm-hmm. Um, you end up uh, getting out of negative feedback loops. And the strange thing about working digitally is that scale is, is arbitrary. And, and the interesting thing is I've got colleagues who are as young as 23 mm-hmm. and, and they see the same issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they see paper as a valuable resource to make a better product. Right. And I think you're perfectly describing, actually, what Richard Harper is talking about with affordances. There's a way in which that, that use of paper and, and your document, your plan in that paper format affords you certain opportunities and experiences and even perceptions that aren't really available in, or as available in, in the digital form. All right. So let's um, continue our conversation. Richard Harper, as I said, co-author of the myth of the paperless office. We're also going to add uh, to this conversation Mark Pitts, executive director, printing, writing, pulp, and tissue for the American Forest and Paper Association. So, Mark Pitts, a welcome to the conversation we've been having. Oh, sorry, it would be helpful if I actually put you up on the board, Mark. The opportunity to join this. Okay. And so, Mark, you know, for all that we're talking about right now, and, and for all that we're maybe celebrating some of the uniqueness of paper. It would be wrong to suggest that paper doesn't face some pretty ba- vast challenges. I mean, paper has seen significant downturns in, in consumption and use. Tell us about those. Sure. Well, let's just start really from the beginning, if I could, just for a second. You know, paper production in one form or another has been in place in the U.S. for a long time. First paper mill in this country started in 1690. So as a starting point, I can say unequivocally that, uh, yes, paper has increased in use and production since then. Uh, But I think you probably are looking for a more modern context. So uh, with that in mind, you know, if you look at the last 10 years as a time horizon, there are certain segments of the paper industry that um, have moved up and certain segments that have moved down. Um, the, the, probably the one that people are most familiar with would be what we call communication papers or papers that are printed or written on, include office papers, books, envelopes, magazines, those kinds of papers. And those products and the demand for that product has declined about 42% over the last 10 years. Um, and the most dramatic drop has really occurred in the newsprint sector. And that drop over that same period is uh, 60%. So uh, major, major changes there. Um, Certain other grades like uh, packaging papers, 
for uh, what we call box board, which would be cereal boxes, shoe boxes, those kinds of things. Demand for those kinds of products are essentially flat. But we're also seeing growth in certain kinds of papers. Uh, the largest segment is what we call container board, what most people call cardboard. That is twice the size of the market for printing paper. And over the last 10 years, that segment's grown about 3% um, since then. And what we're seeing in that area is what we commonly call the Amazon effect, where uh, packaging has shifted from being shipped in bulk uh, materials to retailers to goods being packaged in individual basis uh, based on e-commerce um, uh, purchasing. So yes, well, uh, so yeah, I do think that that Amazon effect is huge. That I mean, anybody who's using that particular service suddenly has a lot more cardboard in his or her house. Cardboard that needs to be recycled or reused or dealt with in some way. Let me just flip back to Richard Harper for a second and to say, Richard, there's also a way in which, in a conscious way, societies and governments make decisions about this, um, uh, and, and companies. For example, Richard, if I go to Whole Foods here in America, they will give me, uh, they will take five cents uh, off my bill every time I don't use one of their paper bags if I show up with my own reusable bag. When I'm traveling elsewhere in the world, uh, well, I mean, I was in, in fact, uh, in, in England and Northern Ireland and in Ireland, and there are just a, a lot of stores where there just aren't bags. You know, they don't want you to use bags. And, and now, and Richard, maybe you can fill us in on this. There's also the new so-called latte levy. Tell us about the latte levy. Oh, is this to do with um, um, uh, the way you drink, what, what holds your coffee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, exactly. And uh, re- re- recyclable cups rather than disposable cups. I, I think there, though, the, the, and also the question of bags is really the contrast between plastic, which right. which persists and lingers, and paper, and um, and, the, and re- re- regulations to 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 try and negate the, the spread of paper bags and the kind of the chaos of them. And, uh, paper is the is the like is is the better choice there. I think that's 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 that's, that's the, the argument there. I think what's interesting about about what um, just been said about um, communications paper is 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 how um, some declines in paper are not necessarily to do with the affordances of paper so much as to do with if you like the affordances of other media. So so newspapers, for example, um, flourish when. Um, uh, when they have a kind of a benign circle of sufficient advertising for them to to justify having more news copy, and more news copy makes more space for more advertising. But in the past three, four years, the Marxists, um, perhaps a bit longer than that, have imagined that it's more effective to spend um, on, uh, through social media on Facebook and so forth, through, 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 through uh, Google search engines, and have been taking away their um, marketing revenues from the newspaper industry, and that's resulted in newspapers getting smaller. And as newspapers are getting smaller, they're becoming less appealing, and they're becoming less different. They're affording less of a different experience than from a um, social media news, news site. And one of the things you might say about a social media news site, like your Facebook news feed, is it's very short. It's just tidbits. It's like post-it notes of news. And you can contrast that with, say, the New York Times, which used to be, and still is, relatively a substantive piece of text and affords different kinds of experience. So, but part of the change with the role of paper has to do with changes in other aspects of society. So it's not so much the paper itself is at issue as, as paper becomes a vehicle for other uh, changes. And, and, and sometimes we forget that. So, you know, the reason why people 
um, uh, not buying so many papers is not because they're averse to, 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 to paper itself. It's because of how people are trying to sell to them. And in this instance, it's just paper's pretext. Yeah. Let me just uh, swing back over to, to Mark Pitts about this, too. So, uh, Mark, I've recently returned to teaching and, and uh, uh, at a college level, and I'm noticing how many things uh, I, I'm it, that is it's suggested that I scan things, uh, scan things up onto a platform where all my students can access this. And, and I, I'm... I'm willing to do that, but it also seems to me that there are times in which students probably even want to hold a textbook, a book in their hands. Uh, Mark, does the industry know anything about this from its research? Well, there's been a lot of research done on that. Um, uh, I think it's pretty clear that we've seen over time that paper does, as uh, Richard has indicated, that paper offers a unique sensory experience that other forms of media just can't duplicate. Uh, both from a physical sense and from a neurological sense. And there have been studies done um, about um, uh, student preferences for paper over digital books, and many of those indicate that, um, uh, that you know, comprehension is improved with a physical book. It improves focus, um, uh, recall, particularly on complex subjects. There was a study done by... Um, uh, Dr. Engelman at the Baylor College uh, of Medicine's Laboratory of Perception and Action, where he said that you know paper directs attention and working memory much differently than reading online does, uh, and it results in increased understanding and retention. Um, there was also uh, recently a, a study done uh, at the University of Maryland where they did a literature review of 20 years of reading comprehension studies, and they found that... Um, Students uh, absorb information more easily from printed text than digital text. So I think there are some uh, very clear indications that uh, comprehension um, and recall um, are better on paper than on um, uh, digital screens. And there's a real uh, scientific neurological um, support for for that thinking. Um, all right. I think we're going to take a little break here. And uh, although before we do that, one last thing I'd like to touch on before we go to, to Julia uh, with you, Richard, is, I mean, the other thing that we know, uh, if you just travel around uh, both North America and Europe, it's rare to find a town of any substance that doesn't these days have a smaller kind of shop that in maybe a slightly more boutique or bespoke way is selling paper products, almost as if a re- there's a rebellion of the mind and of commerce uh, going on against everything being on one's phone. Um, you know, there are all these sort of beautiful little stores that you go into and pick out beautiful little kinds of paper. Is that one of the sort of parts of the future of paper that, that we, we use it in that specific way? I think I think I think it's, that, that's right, and uh, partly it's, as Mark said, it's to do with the sensual properties of paper, um, the way you can touch it, the way you can feel it, the way it folds, when it, and the, the experience of writing on it, um, and um, they they can't be replicated digitally, and, but you do different things with the digital. But I think it points towards um, um, a desire people have for 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 for, for real tangible things. And I think as as uh, our lives become more suffused with digital connections and smartphones, which um, uh, allow you to be pestered with the um, digital kind of the umbilical cords to others, which would seem so um, 
so sort of mental only, um, the values of things you can touch and hold and, and um, feel and display and show and um, place on uh, mantelpieces and so forth becomes all the more conspicuous and all the more more valued. So, you know, there's a paradox here, which is the more digital we have, I think, the more some of the values of paper will become um, more honoured. So to, to, to pick, also to pick up what Mark said, I think the research, he's absolutely right about the research that's showing that um, making, using paper to make notes at university, when you're a student, for example, is demonstrably better than using a keyboard. And some universities, sort of Stanford and Harvard, for example, in their business schools, they assume and in fact instruct some, some on some courses, students not to bring laptops, not to take their smartphones, but to bring pen and paper. Now, some of the students are not really used to using pen and paper, but they learn that towards the end of their undergraduate careers that actually when you do use pen and paper, it might seem awkward, it might seem slow, your fingers might get sore, you might not be able to write very well, but something to do with that process of writing on pen and paper and the way that when you do that you attend to your lecturer and perhaps things like the slowness with which you write means you do learn more so this but this is kind of a sense being rediscovered by students and professors um after 20 years of, of us kind of assuming that paper would disappear that we would become only taught via powerpoint and i so i think that people are beginning to see values in paper and some of its physical properties and the ways you use it which were neglected and not released um, we weren't really so sensitive to when paper was ubiquitous and when there's fewer choices. Richard Harper, uh, we're going to have to pause here, and we're also going to have to thank you very much, Richard Harper, co-author of The Myth of the Paperless Office. You can find out more about him on our website, which is not on paper. It's at uh, wnpr.org slash Colin. When we come back, we will take a look. We'll do kind of a case study of one place where they've tried to go as paperless as they can, and we'll find out how well that worked. We kiss each other by reply. Email is only email, but with this email, you're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded January 18th, 2018. So many times I'd be sitting in a bathroom stall and there would be no toilet paper. So finally, I put the NovaWipe app on my phone and now my phone is really disgusting. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish still wraps other fish in paper. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ricky Gervais. And now, back to Colin. All right. So, uh, first of all, I, I neglected to thank uh, one of our guests uh, at the end of the last segment. Uh, I will do so now. Thanks to Mark Pitts, Executive Director for Printing and Writing for the American Forest and Paper Association. So, what happens when an industry decides or is told, maybe even, to get rid of as much paper as they possibly can, to be as electronic and digital as they possibly can? Joining us now is Julia Adler Milstein, uh, Associate Professor at the University of California. Uh, San Francisco School of Medicine and an expert in the use of information technology in healthcare. So, um, Julia, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. And um, is it Milstein or Milstein? I bet you I got it's it Milstein. wrong. Milstein. Oh, I got yeah, it right. I got it perfectly right. I got it. Roll of the dice. I got it right. So, um, 
uh, I often talk about my doctor, Jack, on the show. I don't know why that is. But one day uh, I went in and Jack had a funny look on his face and he kind of swung this table that was like attached to the ceiling around and there was a computer on the ta- table. And I could see that everything that had ever been on paper about me at this medical practice that I've been going to for a really long time was transitioning uh, onto into a, a digital format, which at that moment anyway, Jack wasn't entirely happy about. So I'm sure that you can peg when that was, right? That was probably sometime after 2009. Why is 2009 significant? Yeah, so uh, 2009 is when the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act passed, uh, and it had within it um, a set of provisions that created financial incentives for doctors and hospitals to make that conversion that you described from paper medical records to electronic medical records. And, and so what was the impetus? I mean, I guess I can, uh, you can intuit some, but was there a stated reason why this needed to happen? Sure. Um, so I, I, mean, I think the real reason was recognizing that you can't deliver 21st century medicine using you know, 16th century tools, that healthcare has gotten uh, quite complex. Uh, and in order to make sure that the care that every patient gets is safe and effective, uh, we need to be capturing information electronically uh, and making sure that uh, the right things get done at the right time. And that's just impossible to do uh, using paper. Um, and, and so, on the other hand, it was possible to do using paper for a long, long time. Is it, is it the case that you can't deliver 21st century health care or that you'd be foolish not to try to use, given the tools that are available? I mean, I guess, for example, what you can do if, if your records are digital is you can find out what my blood pressure has been every damn time they've ever taken my blood pressure, uh, you know, just by putting a few search terms in as opposed to having to riffle through pages and pages of moldy old paper. Yeah, I mean, I think there was pretty strong and t- frankly, quite terrifying evidence uh, that there were safety failures. So, um, you know, a doctor would scribble down a prescription and it would get misread by the pharmacy and you would get the wrong dose of that medication. Um, So we really were not delivering 21st century care um, and we were not making sure that, you know, again, the patient was getting, you know, the best possible care. Um, So I think, again, paper uh, had its strengths, but it also really did have its limitations. And I think that some of this evidence around, uh, you know, unsafe care and as well as inefficient care was really what motivated this drive to, to convert to digital. Now, I mean, electronics could have their own downside, too. For example, um, most of us these days uh, are experiencing medicine, partaking uh, of medical care, often within the framework of, of these large healthcare companies that include hospitals and walk-in clinics and, and actual medical practices and places where they just work on your joint replacements or whatever. It's all one company. Electronic record sharing makes a heck of a lot of sense. What happens, though, if I want to or if I need to go to a different healthcare company. Are all my records going to be available from healthcare company one? Sadly not. I think, unfortunately, that's where we really have not gotten to where we want to and need to be. So the financial incentives did a really good job of sort of in a given hospital or in a given doctor's office, taking those paper records and putting them in the computer. Uh, But we have not yet gotten to the point that those records can easily move from place to place and follow you as you move across the healthcare system. Um, and I think we are, uh, it, it's actually quite a hard problem to solve. And there's a lot of effort and attention uh, trying, uh, that, that, that's being thrown at that problem, because I think we all recognize that you only get halfway there uh, by making the information digital, you need to then allow it to, to flow across uh, different systems. 
you know, I was talking about that day at the healthcare practice I go to, and it was a very unhappy day when I was there. Everybody seemed like they were they've been they were under stress that they'd been under stress for weeks. You know, they had this rather haggard look where everything that they did was kind of in, in a state of upheaval. They couldn't find things they wanted. Is that typical? Is this a, a tough transition short term? Yes, that's a perfect way to put it, as you just described, that it really does change almost every aspect of, I think, what healthcare uh, professionals are used to doing. Um, and it's because before you had this record, you sort of knew how to look through it. There was a beginning and an end. Um, and uh, and when you go to electronic, it's, you know, there's so many different places information can live. Um, and so it really does change the way that you both put in information as well as get information out of the system. And that's a, that's a very steep and challenging learning curve. And I think you still uh, find uh, healthcare professionals today who will, you know, talk about it as one of the most traumatic experiences of their professional career. Um, and so I think we, we, I don't think we appreciated just how big of a change it was. Uh, it was not sort of a, a technical change where you could say, oh, today you do things this way, tomorrow you do things the other way. It, it profoundly changed, uh, I think, the way that, that uh, healthcare professionals experience their work. Um, are there obviously things that people worry about? It's hard to hack a paper chart. It's easier probably to hack it into some kind of big system like this one. I, I would imagine also people would worry that the more things kind of get automated and digitized, uh, the more certain kinds of mistakes could happen. Uh, and if there's a mistake that nobody notices, then, you know, I mean, 10 years from now, some robot will come down and, uh, you know, turn off my dialysis or, or, or something like that. I, I mean, what, what, what's a realistic worry? What worries you as you study this? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think uh, the two issues you just mentioned, I mean, privacy and security uh, is a concern. I think the industry has paid a lot of attention to it and devoted a lot of resources to trying to protect information, um, you know, as using the, the, the latest and greatest uh, approaches. Um, and I mean, we have seen breaches. And I think, you know, by and large, uh, that's been uh, for financial gain because you can actually make a lot of money selling a medical record. Um, and so, you know, again, I think the industry is, is really trying to do the best they can. Um, we have not seen a lot of material harm come from these breaches. Um, and so I think, you know, again, I, I think it's, it's, it's a concern, but it's not one that I, you know, has you know, fundamentally brought down the industry. All right, Julia, um, we're going to have to pause the, there. We're going to have to end there. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. This is a fascinating topic. We won't let it go entirely. Julia Adler Milstein, who's from University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, an expert in the use of information technology uh, in healthcare. We will be back tomorrow with a very different kind of show. Thanks for tuning in today. <laughs>